Welcome. Welcome to the AV Forums Podcast Extra, presented by Phil Hinton. Hello and welcome to the Podcast Extra for October. In this edition, we talk Halloween horror from the 1980s. The AV Forums Podcast Extra. Extra. So joining me on the Podcast Extra tonight is Matt Jarvis, Steve Weathers, Chris McAnini and Simon Crust. Good evening, guys. Good evening, Good evening. Hello. Hello. And for the Podcast Extra... It's going out a day late. It's the 29th, which means it's very close to Halloween. So why have we got the movies team here tonight on the podcast extra? It's because we're going to talk about Halloween. Not specifically Halloween, but horror and horror from the 80s. Steve's idea. So Steve, give us a rundown of what you think were the big horror films of the 1980s, and then we can set about them. Okay, and this is definitely just my opinion, and I'm sure I'm going to get shot down a few times as I go through this list. And for the pedants out there, the 1980s is 1981 to 1990, okay? Not 1980 to 1989. That's wrong. It's already changing the decade for us as well. I'm doing the correct decade. Shift the goalposts, why don't you? Right. In 1981, we had the original Evil Dead, which I believe has just been remade. Um... We also had quite a lot of, uh, of werewolf movies because we had American Werewolf in London and The Howling and kind of werewolf movie in The Wolfen. 1982, uh, we had Poltergeist, of course, um, with Spielberg and Toby Hooper. And then uh, two remakes of some classics, Cat People and The Thing. So big cheers from Chris, I suspect, coming out there. Yay! Uh, 83, we had, in memory of uh, Tony Scott, his first film, The Hunger. We also had The Keep. So two vampire movies there, although The Keep's basically missing in action for the last 30-odd years. Uh, we had Videodrome from David Cronenberg. And a really good adaptation, actually, I think, of Something Wicked This Way Comes, the Ray Bradbury novel. Uh, 84, we had Nightmare on Elm Street, of course, an absolute classic. Um, we also had Razorback, which I really like, uh, which is basically Jaws on land with a giant pig uh, in the mm. outback, directed by Russell Mulcahy, which I, I think is a forgotten classic. And Gremlins, I suppose, classes as a horror film too. Uh, 85, uh, Day of the Dead, the third part of um, what was then uh, George Romero's trilogy of dead movies. And also Fright Night, which is, again has been remade recently. In 86, uh, Cronenberg again with The Fly, um, obviously his biggest hit, uh, Aliens. Um, if you class that as a horror movie rather than a war film. Uh, 87, uh, Vampires again made a bit of a comeback because he had Near Dark, which is Catherine Bigelow's, one of her first movie, I think, or second movie, um, and also The Lost Boys. And then after that, I ran out of, uh, basically, 88, 89, and 90, I couldn't find anything I thought was worthy of talking about. It was all just remakes and rubbish. But if anyone's got any suggestions, I'm open to them. The only one I could find for 88 was Child's Play. Did we mention that one? Was I yeah, Child's Play I thought about because I suppose it's not a particularly good movie, but obviously... It's had a cultural impact, I suppose, over the last uh, few years. Well, the film didn't cause that, you know. No, I know, I appreciate that. But and it's, it's it's only tenuously linked because the it was found a copy of what happened to be found in one of the killer's houses. Yeah. So you know, it's also not very good. The sequels are better. <laughs> the first one's okay, you know, in demonic well, doll genre. It's it's not too bad as those things go. But yeah, they, they definitely, we don't tend to like sequels as much, especially in the horror franchise, but Child's Play actually did get better with the sequels, which is, you know, booking the trend somewhat. Well, do we but, not have Curse of Chucky out uh, next year as well? Yeah, we do. That's right. Well done. There's Bride of Chucky, isn't there? And there's there's Bride of Chucky. Seed of Chucky. Seed of Chucky, yeah, not so good. Bride of Chucky is really quite funny, actually. Yeah. Okay, right. So kicking off then, Chris, I'm sure you want to get into this one. Uh, Would you class yeah. The Wolfen as a, as a horror film and a werewolf film? 
Well, I class it as a horror film. I don't class it as a werewolf film because they're not werewolves. Although that is part of the... We've just blown the mystery of the movie there, of course. But it's, uh, cool it's about... Wolf and... <laughs> I think we know there's some wolves in it. <laughs> well, there's wolves, but they're not werewolves, are they? They're not men who turn into wolves. They are a, a distinct either, breed. Are they? Well, they're a super intelligent breed of wolf, which has existed alongside man throughout time. And then because of the, the whole axis of the movie seems to shit. Michael Bodley's movie... Michael Bodley, who did Woodstock, so he had some, you know, very hip credential, pop cultural credentials there. But what he was doing was um, bringing the Native American Indians in, and the whole idea was that white man arrived in America, eradicated, decimated the uh, the native population of the the Redskins and the Wolfen themselves. The Indians and the wolf, the Wolfen lived sort of symbiotically. They respected each other's territory. They knew each other's mythology and existence and looked after one another white man comes in ruins it all and the native indians and the wolf become a force that lives underground and becomes subjugated the, the film takes the premise that the wolf and themselves uh, are now living in the derelict areas of the bronx and they are now they've been using it as their hunting ground preying on society's dregs the derelicts the winos the homeless the vagrants people that won't be missed but in the film version, because it's based on, it's, it's adapted from a best-selling novel by Whitley Stryber. Whitley Stryber. Yeah, yeah. Who, 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 did, who did go. I love the book. I think the book's tremendous. It nursed me through a bounce of bronchitis. Bonkers, didn't he, Whitley Stryber? Didn't he claim he was adopted well, by aliens or something? He did, yes. But that was later on. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and I don't blame the Wolfen for that one. But the, the book was very pulpish. You know, two detectives uncover, you know, the, the, the existence of this pack of super-intelligent wolves who they are kind of not the same creatures they have human-like faces they have hands instead of paws but they run about on all fours and they act as a pack and these will these wolf and make the mistake of killing two coppers which brings down the wrath of the you know the new york police department and it's a great it's a great pulpish horror novel loved it the film come along and they changed it somewhat as i've already said by bringing the native indian angle into it and uh, the wolves in this particular case they kill um, this business tycoon, this land developer, who is going to move into the South Bronx derelict area and build it all up, which would therefore destroy their hunting ground and, well, their home. So they kill him and his missus, but of course that then leads to a police investigation. And Albert Finney, is, Albert Finney, who does a fantastic, um, you know, Manhattan accent, and com- comes across well as this, you know, washed-out detective who's been through it all, you know, the, the old jaded, cynical detective, paired up with a, a counter-terrorism specialist because they believe that if these two highly influential and wealthy people have been wiped out, it could well be a terrorist cell that have, have done it. And, um, and the investigation ensues and a few bloody murders take place. And the great thing about the movie and the book, incidentally, is it, it gives you sympathy for the, uh, the monsters because they're only doing what comes naturally. They're only protecting their own and looking after their, their homeland, their turf, their hunting ground. And as the point is made in the film, you know, man kills for less valid reasons than that. And it, it ends on a, an amazingly moving moment, I think. I mean, I've gone about this film a hell of a lot on the site. And God, I, I cannot wait for the day. As well. I know, I know. Well, you started it. Well, no. <laughs> It's a great yeah, film, and it's a horror film, but it's not a werewolf movie. There you go. Yeah, which is when I saw it as a kid in 80, I suppose 82, 83 on video. Uh, I was bitterly disappointed because it's not particularly exciting. I don't think it's very scary. Uh, there weren't any werewolves in it, and I felt cheated and robbed. <laughs> I was expecting well, to see that, at least some transformations. 
I'd read the book, so I knew what was in store, knew about the film beforehand, and I loved it. Absolutely, it's still one of my all-time favorite. The only thing I remember about it is talking about people having their heads cut off and them still staying alive for a few seconds afterwards. Which you see in the movie as well. Which you see in the other, that's one of those things where they telegraph it and then they show it to you later. Funny enough, um, American Wealth came out the same year. In fact, America, America Wealth well, came and out. The Howling both came out in the same year, and they did deliver. They were well, the films I wanted to see. The point I was going to make about the Severed Heads, American Wealth came out just after Wolfen, and the police detective in that, very similarly to the one who gets his head chopped or bitten off in Wolfen, his head comes flying off in, in exactly the same sort of moments as well. So the two films were quite neatly um, took out the, the bigoted, uh, ridiculously buffoonish police inspector in the same fashion. And I loved, I loved them all. I love all Werewolf movies. Now, American Werewolf in London, that is one film that still scares the living daily out of me. Yeah, and the I scenes think, on the moors are genuinely yeah, terrifying. And, and I think the it was because when, when I saw it at the time was when my parents had gone out shopping and the video was lying there next to the video machine, so I watched it and couldn't sleep for a month afterwards. Uh, but the thing, the thing that really plays on me with that film is the dream sequences. The nightmares. The nightmares, nightmares yeah. And uh, when he wakes up and he hasn't actually woken up and that kind of thing, and um, you know the the mutant Nazis attacking <laughs> the children watching, on them, the, aren't they? Yeah, yeah, and that whole bit, and when he's stalking the deer in the forest as well. I mean, those things they really. And I haven't seen the movie in probably about seven or eight years. Those are things that still vividly I can picture in my head. I think just the way it was shot, the way it, it, it was a dark comedy, but. It, it was also out-and-out out horror, and I think it also had that, that sort of realistic feel to it as well. It wasn't like a, a supernatural thriller. It, it, it tried to to fit itself in some kind of reality, and, and I think that definitely came across definitely came across well, to me as a seven-year-old. I think what works about it is it does bring the supernatural in. It's, it's very heavily supernatural, but as you say, it brings it into the gritty modern world in a very believable sort of fashion, mainly because the protagonists are taking the, the mickey out of it. You know, how preposterous could it possibly be to have your deceased friend come back to you while visit you in hospital and then tell you you're a werewolf and then go on about how boring it is to be existing in a limbo <laughs> with, with other dead people who've been killed by supernatural means. It's clever, it's blackly comic. It's genuinely laugh-out-loud funny in many places, but it is really sphincter-tinglingly terrifying as well. I mean, we've... The main scene, which everyone can associate with, is the underground, you know, where the accountant Bringsley gets pursued by the wolf up and he chases him down the corridors of the London underground and catches him on the escalator. We've all been in, you know, a subway or an underground station on your own late at night. And it is an unnerving place to be. Okay, we don't normally get terrorized by a bloody huge werewolf, thank God. The one thing about that movie which I really wish you saw more of was the monster because when you see the making of, and we've probably all seen bits of this, when you see the size of that beast that Rick Baker created, the full animatronic, which was being like a wheelbarrow was being rushed along the streets, but you only in the film see it's, it's, it's snout, it's face and it's front paws. Bloody hell, it's huge. If you'd just seen, if they could get one or two shots of that full length, God, it would have been a vastly more intimidating creature. But anyway... I say we've all been in situations like that, maybe not pursued by a werewolf, but certainly strange sounds, end of the platform, you know, some shambling vagrant perhaps, or a gang of scallies, whatever. You know, it's we can all associate with that one, even though you know it, the film is an out-and-out -out fantasy in many ways. 
But it's also a love story. And that bit works as well. So you're genuinely moved at the end of it as well. Jenny Agato is seriously saucy in that film, I have to say. Seriously saucy indeed. It's yeah. one of the it's one of the few films that genuinely combines horror and comedy successfully. And we should also few films I can think of that actually does that. Just before we move on to other horror comedies, because there's a few others too, um, it's worth pointing out that John Landis, an American, um, could highlight the social attitudes and look of modern-day London better than many British-based filmmakers could do. You know the way he posts. That's often the case, though. I think outsiders can see. Yeah, the the outside observation. Films about America are made by people that aren't American. You know the so, uh, the Pakistani hotel, uh, hotel hospital porters and all that. The um, yeah. the punks on the train, the, the bobbies, the the yabba mouth taxi driver. You know it's it's all it's all there, and the zoo. <laughs> what it's most famous for is Rip Baker's makeup, um, and that was the. But I don't know why Hollywood do this, but they sometimes make two films about the same thing at the same time. It seems to happen a lot. Armageddon and Deep Impact, for example. And well, they did it in 1981 because you had the Howling and and with Rob Bob Bottin doing the makeup effects, and um, and American Werewolf with Rick well, Baker doing, and both of them uh, took the same approach of having that kind of very graphic, visceral. Well, there's a good reason for that because, um, and I've written quite extensively about this already, because Rob Bottin was working for Rick Baker at the time, and he basically took the ideas that he just learned from Rick Baker took them onto The Howling, uh, which got released just before um, American Wealth, pipped it at the post. And for my money, now I know I've, I've said it before, and you know I'll go on a limb each time I say this, I prefer the transformation in The Howling. Now, I know it's in the dark, so you're hiding a fair bit there. The one in American Wealth takes place in a very, and it's, it's audacious the way they've done it, in a bright lit room with a very sort of mundane living room setting. It's not even in a horror, horrific sort of shadow-draped, scary place. It's in the heart of the home, so it's scary in that respect. But I genuinely prefer the more nightmarish aspect of the, of the Howling's one, mainly because it's just hideously nightmarishly demonic and scary. The music's better because it's, it's building up the suspense. D. Wallace, who should actually have run a mile by the time this guy's turned, he grows from like six foot to eight foot, you know, and it takes him about four or five minutes to do it. And she stands there the whole time watching this as his chest gets bigger, his arms get bigger, his claws get bigger. And my granny, what big teeth you've got, his snouty long gates and his fangs get huge. You'd have run, wouldn't you? You know, but then again, maybe because you're paralyzed to the spot. Well, I always, I always like liking the fact that you know you see something really genuinely horrific, you're rooted to the spot, you you just transfixed, you're horrified, you can't move. Fight or so, flight, fight or yeah, flight exactly. is the, the the terminology for that. You either freeze or you run. Or you run, exactly. But I I like the ones in the Howling because they stand eight feet tall and they they look absolutely terrifying, and they don't do a, a great many terrifying things in the film. They don't act the way that the one American Elf does, which is a bit of a shame. The the stalking scenes aren't as good. And again, The Howling is also a black comedy and a, and a very successful one at that. You know, it, it's a bit more wry than American Wealth. It's not so in your face. Uh, but, it, you know, it, it's a great satire. And again, both movies play a lot of homage to um, the, the werewolf the movies of old. You know, Werewolf of London There's and obviously Lon Chaney's Wolfman. Man in the Howling, isn't there, on TV? And it's quoted quite liberally in yeah, American Wealth. Yeah, it's I'm going to keep out of this discussion. I've, I've never really been into werewolf movies. I've seen American Werewolf, but I've never seen either of the other two. So, so uh, maybe I'll have to um, investigate those. But it's, it's just never been my thing. 
I think I think I think you're right though. I think they can be spine tinglingly scary though. And I know what you mean about the whole underground scene. Yeah, and I've been to Leeds on a Friday night, and I can I can quite understand that. Well, they're quite hairy in Leeds as well, aren't they? <laughs> <laughs> and semi-naked. Moving on from the the werewolf themes, um, you, you, there was a pretty good list you had there, Steve. But there was a couple on there that you'd uh, didn't mention that I thought you know were were, were quite seminal. Or at least I really liked them. I went to the cinema and saw them and thought they were fantastic. One of which was Hellraiser. Um, Clive Barker's first filmic, was that one right? It's his first film, wasn't it? I'm pretty sure it was his first uh, first yeah. film as director. It's his first major film, yeah. He had done a couple of short films beforehand and had been um, productions of his stuff before. But it's the first film that he helmed with a proper budget and a proper studio behind him um, of his own material. Um, as a, as a, an original film, brilliant. Absolutely fantastic. Brought in the uh, bit about the supernatural, you know, the, the magic box, the Rubik's Cube that you can open up and opens the gateway to hell. Brilliant. The, the Laments configuration. So, well, it wasn't called that then, was it? That, that come later. And wasn't the, the sequel as well? Cenobites? What about the Cenobites? That was then, wasn't it? Yeah, Pit Cenobites, Head. yeah, that's, that's the inhabitants of it. The Chatterer. The, its sequel, wasn't that in 80s as well? 89, yeah. was it, maybe? Yeah, Hellbound Hellraiser 2, which was... Poor. I mean, I... <laughs> Well, I don't think so. I thought it was a because I mean, Hellraiser itself, you know, starts and finishes, it ends, you know, brilliant, nice, nice chapter, chapter and verse, begin, beginning, middle, end, brilliant, great, and to be able to start again um, with the Hellraiser through by bringing the mattress out and getting the guy to cut his arms off and brilliant, yeah, great, and it all starts off again, and you get to find out who, who uh, what was his, what are they calling him, nailhead, not nailhead, pinhead, is it pinhead, nailhead. <laughs> <laughs> the guy with pinhead. all the nails in his head. Pinhead. Doug, pinhead. There you go. Um, Bradley is Pinhead, yeah. Yeah. Um, you get to find out the, a little bit behind the, what these characters were, why they became who they were. So those two films, I think, work brilliantly together. Both late 80s. Fabulous. Fabulous films. Um, not certainly, a, certainly a big fan of the original movie. And, you know, I, I do like the second one, but a lot of um, botched decisions were made. Uh, Clive Barker didn't obviously direct the second one. Um, it was his buddy who'd done who'd done it. Uh, it's his buddy who what done it, sir. And um, they never seemed to get the grasp of where it was set. Was it London? Was it America? Because this first one is definitely set in London. I forgot yeah. the name of the street. It was quite. A, it became quite a famous um, haunt for people to go, like a pilgrimage, didn't it? Uh, the house in Do- Dolly Dolling Green or something. Oh God, I probably got that bit wrong. But anyway, in the second one, all of a sudden it's transformed to New York. You've got New York detectives prowling about. New York cop was breaking into the house where Julia was slain by the Cenobites. And, uh, but it's quite clearly still filmed in England with a predominantly English cast. Although you had a few of the American expats, a bit like the, yeah, the James Bond movies, a lot of the American expats who were living over here at the time were often shoehorned into these movies as well. So I don't like it for that reason. Um, and I think once you get it, this is the problem with movies like this because they do go to a, a, a level of hell, don't they? And it's never going to be... No, like a, budgetary constraints are going to have that take their toll on this as well but no matter how you try and depict a version of hell it's never going to be enough for you is it and they and i suppose they did at least attempt to do it because they go into the end uh, the labyrinth don't they which is one of the levels of hell and uh not a great deal really happens apart from people running along dark corridors it's a gorier film if you get the chance to watch the uncut one, which I think we've all got the uncut one now. It was certainly heavily censored when it first came out at the flicks. And I dragged my mates to go and see that as well. 
and the girl I was seeing at the time. And, I, and she loved horror movies. And I said, this is going to blow you away because I've got all the Fangoria magazines and I'd <laughs> seen all the bits that were going to be in it which before the MPAA and the BBFC trimmed them all out. And we sat there and it was virtually bloodless. I just couldn't, I was a laughing stock. That, that happened a lot, didn't it? And the, I used to read Fangoria as well. And a number of films I read about and I thought, oh God, that's going to be amazing. And then when it came out in the UK, it had been cut to ribbons. Heavily like, truncated, oh, yeah. Well, there's all the stuff they were talking about in Fangoria. Like all the Friday the 13th movies. All the... Oh, well, and they're, and they're still cut, Steve. They're still cut. Yeah. We're, we're, we're a long waiting. video nasties, wasn't it, as well? Well, yes, which, yeah. which brings us nicely on to The Evil Dead. Actually, thank you for that nice little segue, Simon. Oh, well, no problem. <laughs> yeah, because 1981 was The Evil Dead, of course, which um, seminal horror film, Sam Raimi's first movie, uh, tiny budget, shot in a cabin up in the woods, literally. Um, and took three years to make. Yeah, and um, obviously was, one of the, was, was unfairly uh, at the time in the early 80s when the video first, VHS tapes first started doing the rounds. And I, I, mean, I remember going to the video stores and, you know, this guy would rent me anything and he had all this stuff behind the counter it was great and some of it was pretty unpleasant um but video, video the evil dead kind of got lumped in among, as a, a video nasty in that whole kind of daily mail parent you know hysteria and hype um but actual fact i don't well i think probably mostly because that woman gets raped by a tree and i suspect but i think even sam Raimi admits now he wish he hadn't done um, well, I mean, to be honest, I mean, again, we've discussed the video nasty furor many, many times over and how ridiculous it was, the witch hunts. But, uh, you know, considering the, their attitude at the time, I'm not in the least bit surprised Evil Dead ended up on that list because it was so absolutely gory and OTT violence, despite its Tex Avery cartoon style of, you know, gratuitous OTT violence. I've used OTT several times there. <laughs> I've gone OTT on the phrase OTT. OTT on OTT, yeah. <laughs> But um, so, you know, although it shouldn't be there, I'm not surprised it ended up there alongside things like zombie flesh eaters and, you know, all the other slew of video nasties. Which I also but, saw. I think, <laughs> well, I think also, I think, we, I think anything, I think any film where you, you start using sort of domestic appliances and sort of things you find in the home as killing weapons, that immediately kind of puts it into that sort of video nasty uh, genre, doesn't it? Do you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. Killer. Yeah, and this is using shovels and pokers and stuff like that. So immediately people associate that and bring it closer to home. I think that's sometimes the issue with them. But I think, interestingly, I think the sequel uh, is another one of those films that successfully combines scary and funny because it is really still, funny. Evil Dead 2 is the film that he wanted to make first time around. Yeah, yeah. it's basically a remake, essentially, isn't it, of the first film? But it is outstanding. Outstandingly good. I, I, I adore both movies. I wish I could say the same for Army of Darkness, the third one, because you know it's a homage to Ray Harryhausen. But it's not a great horror film. It's not a great comedy either. But uh, the first two, first one is genuinely scary. Again, you know, I managed to get hold of an uncut version that very, very quickly because even the bond that was banned in the UK was trimmed. Almost every scene of bloodletting was trimmed, and even though it was still really, really gory. And I'll go through TT again. Jesus, what's, what's happened to me? <laughs> and, uh, you know, but I got an uncut copy off the author, Ramsey Campbell. I'll just plug that guy now. And um, Did you know Ramsey or, Campbell? I'm good mates with Ramsey Campbell. He's yeah, a neighbour of mine. He's just down the road. Yeah. The Dollar Waiter's mother, that's one of his. Yeah, it? yeah. It's a fantastic writer. Anyway, that's that's. Yes, no, story. I agree. I totally agree. But uh, I got the uncut version off him because he got it off Stephen King. Get a load of that one because he's best you mates with Stephen King. So there you go. A uh, bit of name was, dropping. Was there a King quote on the front of the video box, actually, wasn't there? Uh, the most ferociously original horror film. Yes, that's right. That's the ever one ever made. <laughs> uh, and that, without a doubt, that was a big, big, you know, selling point. 
because this was an ultra low budget movie going out unrated, which already was going to damn it. But he saw it and gave that quote. That sold it everywhere, everywhere. You know, that, he got a lot to thank Stephen King for that for, or rather Sam Raimi's got a lot to thank Stephen King for. But yeah, I saw so, the uncut sadly, one, and it's been remade, which is always annoying. Particularly, you say, sad, you say sadly, but advanced word is that and again, I haven't seen anything apart from the exceptionally gory trailer. Um, I'm sure that. Uh, which do, which does kind of you know give you a bit of hope for this one being you know quite raw and explicit and gratuitous. Yeah, but uh, I just think remakes are a waste of time, with the possible exception of the thing and maybe Cat People, which we'll come on to in a second. Well, uh, I, I, remakes I think... should serve a purpose. You know, they should they don't re- slavishly remake the first film. That's the that is an absolute mistake. Now they, I'm going to come on to some horror sequels, which actually do you know fit this time of the year. Everyone hates the Rob Zombie Halloween movies, uh, or everyone seems to anyway. And I would normally lump myself with that. But having just reviewed a couple of um, Halloween 4 and Halloween 5, which are just crap, basically, you know, they, they are. The first one's a classic. Halloween 2, it's just a continuation, so we can let that one go. Halloween 3, it's a great movie in its own right, but shouldn't have been called Halloween 3, because it's, it's a different thing altogether. There's no Michael Myers. The rest of the sequels were just ad nauseum, the same thing, rehashed over and over and over again. Um, but the thing about the Rob Zombie remakes, he did do something different with them. He explored the character, whether you like it or not, he explored the character of Michael Myers. He, showed, he saw him without a mask on. He subverted Dr. Sam Loomis incredibly well. Um, he, everyone was dysfunctional. Everyone was screwed up. He did it. He, he didn't just do the same films. He did something completely different, but with the same, you know, overriding theme. Now, whether you like it or not, I applaud that. That's why you make you do a remake. You do something different with it, with that old material. If you've got another angle to exploit, another theme to explore, there's no other reason to do it, because otherwise you're just slavishly copying what's gone before, and you will not be as good. Like John Carpenter's um, The Thing, because that is not... He, he called it a remake, but it really isn't. Because well, it follows it's much the original more of a remake of the original story rather than well, the it's film, it's yeah. an adaptation of the original yeah. novella. You know, it's not a remake of the 1951, you know, Christian Nyby Howard Hawks movie at all. Uh, but that, that that original one was a, a classic in its own right, and I adore that black and white movie. But it's um, it's a very loose adaptation of the original novella. Yeah. Carpenter's version is that original story down to the character names, the situation, um, and the, the mutating, shape changing alien entity. It's it's all there. That's where he got it from. And, uh, and that is an unparalleled classic, as I, I'm sure we've discussed that <laughs> ad infinitum. <laughs> so what, what about Cat People, then? Paul Schrader's remake of Cat People, yeah. Uh, well, that is a remake, isn't it? Um, because it was original, um, a lot of M's floating into this one. Who was it? Val Luton. It, it is a um, remake of Val Luton's movie, but it's obviously very different in many respects. It's got to obviously be well, made what naked, they, too. What they couldn't it was a lot explore. more explicit. Well, well, they, well, they yeah, couldn't the explore sexuality, sexuality or... could they? Although it was hinted at that. God, it was definitely there. You knew that yeah, if... Uh, sexuality was definitely part of the if, story. If Simone Simon actually did indulge in any hanky-panky, she would turn into a big black panther. So, you know, that that was definitely in the original script. Very outrageous for its time, that. You, got, you know, boundary pushing. Um, but, of course, you could go a lot further than that in 1982, wasn't it, yeah? Um, and Paul Schrader certainly did it with Natasha Kinski. That was a definite, a bit like Jenny Agatha in American Werewolf. Natasha Kinski and Cat People was another thing that fueled many, many teenage nights. 
Yes, because when <laughs> not, you have to tie her naked just, to a bed myself. and then sleep with her so she turns into a, into a and cat. And you, you, you got that bit with the hooker as well, who falls, down, who falls down the stairs. And I don't know why he did this. It's ludicrous, but I'm glad he did. She falls down the stairs, big buxom, you know, um, hooker. And as she hits, <laughs> she hits the floor, you know, a bra just pings open and the blobby bits just blob away quite nicely. It's got and Mark, I, Mark Abdel playing an absolute loony. <laughs> Yeah, and you've got the, the fantastic arm ripping as well. Yeah, I mean, which is that, quite shocking. That, that gets you, that doesn't it? Because you, oh dear God, it's and again quite a good transformation sequence. A slightly different approach to the, than, the, than the howling or the American World from the year before. Um, who, yeah. did the, who did it? Was it something Reardon, wasn't it? It was Tom Tom Berman. Oh, Tom Berman, that's right. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, uh, and again, it was a slightly different approach, um, but it looked really good. I thought at the time. So moving on, and uh, we did mention a, a bit about comedy, horror, and so on. And, and Matt, um, I believe The Gremlins is up on, on your list there. Probably because it was one of the first, if you like, horror films I think I ever saw, being maybe slightly younger than some of the, you guys. Um, by the time this one came out, 84. <laughs> <laughs> it was probably... Uh, it, it was one of the ones that we kind of watched on a probably a pirate video in our lunch hour bunking off from school type video. So, um, yeah, but it was always sort of quite well loved. I seem to remember it hit the um, TV screens quite quickly as well. But um, I think it was one of the first sort of horror films that parents didn't really mind their kids watching. I don't think it was ever considered to be too gory or too violent. But when you actually looked at it in detail, there was, you know, there was a fair amount of blood and gore involved and um, lots of cute, cuddly animals that you could then scare your sister with. So from, from that perspective, I think the horror side and the, the comedy side was quite well done. It, it's, funny, it's funny you mention that because it was, uh, it was released on Blu-ray a few years ago and it was around about Christmas time that it was released. And I remember that I was at my parents at the time and I put it into the, the Blu-ray machine we were watching it. You forget how gory it actually was. I mean, I'd, I'd always related it as, as, a, as a sort of, um, not a kid's film, but a sort of a teenager type uh, comedy fantasy type thing. And you forget how gory it is putting them in the microwave yeah. and, and exploding them. And, Blender. And of course, I'm watching it with the family and... and I actually felt a little bit uncomfortable with some scenes. I think because I've most forgotten... of the gore is aimed at the cute, at the cute furry animals, though, and, you know, and then obviously the, the the gremlins. I think most people kind of overlook that the the amount of sort of human death and destruction is actually quite well controlled in it. But well, it's still, I hadn't seen it in such a long time. I actually felt a little bit uncomfortable watching it in front of the family with with the younger members of the family and stuff. And uh, you know, at one point, I almost switched it off. You know, because it's I just I didn't remember it being as violent as it was. Well, I think yeah, the, there's been a lot of TV cuts, though, hasn't there? Which maybe people have seen, and those those are the ones you remember as being a bit less gory. Um, when it was released, um, I remember news articles saying um, it, it, it hit the news headlines because of this very reason. It was sort of aimed at the the uh, teenage or twelve year old kind of market, but it had such a violent content, and it was given fifteen certificate. I'm sure that was right. It was it fifteen uh, when it was first yeah, released? It was, came it out was it that old ago? Jesus. Well, when did 15 start? Because I oh, it's after 14, isn't it? It came out the same time as Temple of Doom, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It caused a big Ferrari in the States because it was a PG, as was Temple of Doom. And hence they created the PG-13 rating because of that. You know, the, the two of them, sure. both Spielberg productions, because a lot of families and kids wanted to go and see them. That's why they're, you know, all the hoo-ha about it. Mm. But what you tend to forget with um, Gremlins is... and. Matt, you touched on it before, is the amount of human death in it as well. And you say it was nice and controlled. That People forget that humans are being killed in that movie as well. 
the gremlins are doing nasty things that not just like little sadistic, you know, um, but, but funny at the same time creatures, they're hurting and killing people. Admittedly, the people you see die like that, that miserable old cow who lives down the road who wants to kill his dog. Yeah. You know, so, and you see Santa Claus who's out, what are they doing to him? You know, the cops are driving by and Santa's got gremlins all over him. And that, 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 that deputy's panicking, you know, what's he got all over him? And these things are definitely ripping into him. <laughs> you know, this yeah. is, it, it is nastier than you, you give it credit for. Uh, but it's a great, it's a absolutely great movie, of course. And once again, you know, you've got the Spielberg touch of suburbia being subverted. You've got the whole Joe Dante, uh, you know, pastiche of movies gone before. I mean, when they sit in the cinema and they watch Snow White, it's, but that to me is an iconic moment now when they all begin to sing along sing, with yeah. it. It's just there's, beautiful. There's a brilliant line where she goes, I think that they're watching Snow White and they love it. Yeah. <laughs> it's, just, it's just tremendous. But, but again, another movie where the sequel was actually quite good as well, if I remember correctly. I mean, I, I think I quite enjoyed it. They moved, they moved it to New York. They did. And, yeah. uh, you know, you then had, had the progression of, of uh, the Gremlins learning to talk and learning to sing and one's a talk show host and they do the whole New York, New York number. and Yeah, that was quite funny. It was really quite funny and, and it wasn't quite as, as uh, risky or violent as the original, I don't think. See, yeah, I think it was, it was like down, an out-and-out comedy, basically. The it was Disney-fied, wasn't it? It was uh, like a, t- it was like a um, you know, Warner Brothers cartoon. You had a nice sadistic Christopher Lee in there as the, uh, the, the the professor, the scientist in the, the it's very Donald Trump style satire, isn't it? In this big high rise complex, he's going to do all tricks and horrible experiments on the gremlins and on the magwai, we should say the magwai, and uh, and it's quite a good role for Christopher Lee to be honest. But yeah, it's it's not a bad sequel as these things go. The another one you missed off your list, uh, Steve, uh, Reanimator, which I thought was a spectacular. Horror film. Absolutely genius. Just been released on Blu-ray. I'll say just. It was about two months ago now. And one of, us, one of us is meant to be covering that. One of us point. is meant to be covering Yeah, I know. <laughs> You're fighting it out, but who does it then? <laughs> well, we've been busy. <laughs> There's it, been a little again, thing uh, called Bond getting in the way. Yeah. Oh, God, I, I, don't, don't get me started on Bond. Reanimator is, is another thing that I think is another film that I think is genuinely very funny. Uh, not particularly scary. I mean, gory in places, which is great. But basically, genuinely quite funny, laugh out loud funny at times. There seemed to be a lot of horror comedies in the 80s by the looks of it. Well, it was a very teen-oriented era, wasn't it? Um, If you think of the 70s, it was all quite dark and moody. And then uh, right at the very end, you had um, uh, they started to become lighter with with, uh, Halloween and stuff. And then it sort of entered into the teen genre, horror, driving kind of thing. Well, the biggest one there was Nightmare on Elm Street, wasn't it? I mean, that was the one yeah. that, that really yeah. started the whole teenage slasher uh, movie craze that went on into the 90s, wasn't it? Yeah. Well, I'd say it was Friday the 13th, but no, the the, the point is Nightmare on Elm Street was uh, infinitely better made, far better constructed and far more genre savvy and cult savvy because they created, let's be honest, Freddy Krueger is a child molester and he's, be- you know, there's action figures of him, there's posters of him. He yeah. became not the monster of the series, but the hero of the ensuing franchise. You know, everyone wanted to hit his next zippy one-liner, see him commit his next murder. He became not a figure of terror, but a figure of almost heroic fun, which is, you know, yeah, kind of I mean- wacky and subversive in its own way. So it's clever that they, they did that. 
in the first movie, American, sorry, Nightmare on the Street, he is absolutely terrifying. That film yeah. had a profound effect on me. I went to see that at the flicks, at the, not at my usual cinema, at the Phoenix, which I've gone on about a lot, but the Unit 4 cinemas, called Unit 4, actually had six screens. Can't make that one out. I was in a state of shock coming back from that. I had no idea I'd be that terrified. And I've been well weaned on horror movies for like, God, what, the, the previous 10 years before that. So I had seen extreme stuff, but that one really, really hit home. It's the bit where um, the bit always gets me. She's been chased. She's gone up the stairs and the stairs have gone soggy. She shuts her bedroom door and there's a mirror on the inside of her door. And this is Nancy, and she goes there. Uh, she goes, it's just a dream. It isn't real. It's just a dream. It isn't real. It isn't real. As he comes flying through that, that door and the glass and leaps at it. God, I just, I, I redecorated that cinema seat. I was a complete <laughs> and utter gibbering mess. I quite like the bit when a very young Johnny Depp gets swallowed by his bed. <laughs> yeah. Is that the first one? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> all the blood comes pouring out, and he's, he's watching yeah. Miss Miss Nude America. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was a great, it was a great horror film though. It was full of imagination uh, and scares, and and it was yeah at the time it was quite influential. Well, I think. Again, what's important about the, the movies that came out sort of eighty four onwards? You'd had the transformation movies, then you went into the uh, the comedy splat sort of movies, which Nightmare on Elm Street certainly one of those. Uh, Reanimated very definitely is one of those. Yeah. It's always it's often been called one of the most moist horror movies ever made, and you can see why because the amount of splattery effects that are in it, it's just it's just you know it's outrageous, yeah. and it's a it's a great film you know loosely very loosely based on H.P. Lovecraft's uh, Herbert Westry <laughs> animator, uh, updated and teen orientated and you know highly sexualized as well because no one can forget the infamous well it wasn't shown in the, the UK head, for quite quite, head, no. quite a number of years. But yeah, the, the head, <laughs> the head sequence, a severed head going down on the absolutely scrumptious Barbara Crampton, um, and another. Yeah. Uh, how many guys? You've had Jenny Agatha, we've had uh, Natasha Kinski yeah. and Barbara Crampton. These were the uh, the scream, the scream, scream, scream queens of the eighties. Yeah, so it was also it's a very suppose, moist horror movie. <laughs> if we're talking about teen orientated horror films, then you've got Lost Boys in eighty seven, which was very much. Uh, it was like as Brat Pack they, stuff on it, almost. Brat Pack, yeah, absolutely. But also, obviously, teen orientated and, and about vampires. Although, mm. were they calling themselves? Was, it, was that that period when it's a vampire movie? We're not going to mention the fact it's vampires. Like you know, somehow they were. Uh, they, they, they mention it in Lost Boys, don't they? They don't mention it in Near Dark. They don't mention it in Near Dark, even though I think Near Dark is a superb film. It's far, yeah, far superior film. Well, I mean, it's Lost, not um, not a comedy. I mean, it's meant to be sincere. Lost Boys is is just pop junk. Yeah, uh, I mean, it's, Lost, it's, it's, it's okay. It hasn't aged well at all i mean it, it is so 80s it's almost like top gun in terms of its <laughs> soundtrack and the whole 80s feel about it i mean i thought it was great at the time um i was a bit of a fan of the movie when it originally came out but uh, watching it since it hasn't aged well at all um the laughs aren't as funny as they were back then and the the whole soundtrack just great it, it is a, well, a, a tra- near dark has I think yeah it, it's a, definitely a child of the 80s Lost Boys I wasn't really a fan of it at the time either uh, it, it just seemed too slick and you know I was I was the right age to be watching that but I was I felt ashamed of it it was just too <laughs> it was too juvenile too simple it wasn't nasty enough um, near dark as we've just said is, is a far superior movie um, very clever film 
both dealt with the same sort of idea as well of a slowly vampirized uh, teen being taken over to the dark side, basically, which is a metaphor for m- many, many things if, when you're a by teen. Sort of a subverted vampire family starring yeah. most of the cast of Aliens and directed by James Cameron's wife at the time. Exactly, yeah. By Catherine Bigelow, who, of course, went on to make The Hurt Locker and went, become the first woman to ever win an Oscar for Best Director. So, I mean, Bill, Bill Paxton, you know, great. Oh, turned yeah, out to be great. a great actor, but uh, he was actually terrifying in that. The, the Barroom Saloon Massacre is just uh, is a wonderful piece of uh, set-piece you know, slaughter. And Jeanette Goldstein, yeah, yeah. Lance Henriksen. Yeah, and Lance awesome Henriksen. Lance Henriksen. Who's a, you know, a, a, a veteran of the Civil War. Yeah, he says to him, he goes, how old are you? And he goes, well, I fought for the South. You know, <laughs> yeah, that's just, right. Just, it's, it's great, it's great. In the same year, we also had, uh, this is going to tie in with the recent release of the Universal Monsters box set, which we talked about extensively already. But um, the same year, 1987, we had Monster Squad, which was a great kids stroke horror film. Um, yeah. aimed, aimed squarely at children about a, a bunch of kids who f- have to fight Dracula, Frankenstein's monster, uh, the Wolfman, and um, the um, the Gill Man. I'm missing. Oh, and the Mummy as well, and the Mummy. So all five of the major Universal monsters are in uh, in this film. Although technically it wasn't a Universal production, so they couldn't call. They had to sort of change the design slightly in certain places so they didn't breach copyright. But mm. it's a really funny, really entertaining, written by Shane Black, who of course went on to write Lethal Weapon. And directed uh, by and Fred Decker. Directed by Fred was, Decker, yeah. He made also made um, Night of the Creeps. Night of the Creeps, yeah. Another and um, um, and, and Robocop three. <laughs> and Robocop yeah. three. We shouldn't go into that one at all. Uh, was a go on, Steve. Fa- That's horror for a different line. reason. Use the line. I know you're dying to say it. Yeah, Wolfman's got nods. <laughs> oh, give it! God, give it a bit of welly. <laughs> <laughs> Wolfman's got nods. No, it's, it's it's a really funny movie, and it didn't do very well at the time. But I think it's one of those films that has aged well, unlike The Lost Boys. Um, yes, it is an '80s movie, and it's a sort of an '80s look to it. But but I think it genuinely has weight. I watched it again uh, last week, uh, partly in preparation for this, but also because I just watched the Universal Monsters box set, and I kind of was in the mood. And it does it. The, the makeup effects are by Stan Winston, and they look really good. Uh, um, the cast is excellent. Uh, the guy playing Dracula is really good as Dracula, and uh, they had um, oh, what's his name? The really the guy from Manhunter, Ted, Tom Noonan. Tom Noonan. Tom Noonan, yeah. Playing uh, Frankenstein's monster really well. Um, a kind of sympathetic again, as always, sympathetic guy who's, who's unfortunately cursed as being the Wolfman. Uh, it was a really good movie with a really good um, uh, young cast, uh, and uh, yeah, uh, well, I mean, if you haven't seen it, I, I'd recommend checking it out. I, I think you'll enjoy it. Um, it deserves. To, it, I think it's been rediscovered over the years, and as, as a fan, its audience. I think it was probably, to be honest, ahead of its time a little bit. There's, there's a great um, standoff in the streets with the cops and all the monsters together, uh, which is which is pretty cool. It, it is a great movie. No, the, the cool bit is when the the cool kid who's in the gang, he's got the crossbow and he goes he goes off to face the the brides of Frank of um, Dracula, and he goes, "What are you doing? Well, I'm in the goddamn club, aren't I?" <laughs> that was really cool. Okay, so uh, sadly we're running out of time very quickly, so we need to finish up on this Halloween themed podcast. Uh, so, guys, let's pick our favourite films, horror films of the eighties, and. Um, you know, without giving it too much thought, I'd have to say, personally, it's uh, American Werewolf in London. We've already discussed it. We don't need to discuss it any further. But um, that is one that still gives me the creeps, even after how many years it is now, oh, well over 20 years. It's still one of those films that, um, you know, genuinely gives me uh, goosebumps. You guys? 
it's tough, isn't it, to pick one? All of the above. <laughs> yeah, everything we've well, mentioned. The, the thing um, always is my, possibly my all-time favourite movies, but if you had to limit things down to the 80s and horror movies and what, what direction they were going in, uh, American Elf, definitely. Um, the Evil Dead and its sequel are just truly awesome. And possibly for the most terrifying and fun unexpected ride that I had uh, with a horror movie in the 80s would probably be A Nightmare on Elm Street. Okay, so Chris can't pick one, as usual. Steve? <laughs> I'm, I'm going to go with The Thing. I think it's, it's a near-perfect film um, for me. Uh, uh, it is one of my favourite movies. It is by far and away the most... The film from the 80s that I remember the most, the horror film from the 80s that I, the most impact on me, the monster effects, the transformation effects and that uh, uh, were just staggering, and I loved it. So that's it. The Thing is my favourite 80s horror film. Matt? Oh, purely on the nostalgia of stolen, bunked-off lunch hours, I'm going to go for Gremlins. As I say, it was probably one of the first films of those that I saw, um, just for its just for its comedic value, sort of mixed in with with plenty of blood and gore, and um, microwaved cute animals. Okay, so we end this on microwaved cute animals. Thanks for listening. This has been the podcast extra. Uh, now we are back next month on the 28th of November, uh, but we won't be around on the 28th of December. Uh, I think we'll all be suffering from hangovers and it is the the festive period. Uh, So the podcast extra, the last one for this year, will be next month. Don't forget, we also publish podcasts every week of the month. On the 7th is a movies podcast. Got a funny feeling it's going to be Bond on the 7th of November. I don't know (laughs) why. I don't know why, but I think we might be discussing that. Uh, The 14th is the Games Podcast, the 21st, the Home Cinema Podcast, and then the final podcast extra of the year is on the 28th of November. So all I need to do now is thank the guys. Thanks. Cheers, Phil. Cheers. Yeah. Happy Halloween. (laughs) And this is Phil Hinton saying thanks for listening. We'll catch you again very soon. The AV Forums Podcast Extra was mixed and produced by Phil Hinton. And the senior producer was Stuart Wright. All content, including sound clips and music, is copyright material and used for promotional use only. The AV Forums Podcast Extra is copyright M2N Limited.